Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here this weekend. Uh, thanks uh, for everybody watching online, too. Thanks for joining us. My name's Jeff. If I've uh, never got to say hi to you, I'd love to do that. Love to meet you and shake your hand a little bit and welcome you to Grace. We're in a series, we're actually finishing it this weekend called What We Do. And uh, throughout the series, we've been talking about what are the natural outcomes of being a follower of Jesus. If I have moved from death to life, if I've stepped through the torn veil and my life has been changed and renewed, what would be normal about me? Uh, not radical, not crazy, not, not weird, but what would Jesus look and say, that's how my people live, that's what they do. And so we've been talking about this for quite a bit. We talked about being an ambassador. We talked about this idea of helping Jesus make sense. Uh, we talked about being salt and light. And then we, we talked about seeing the world differently, the injustices and the inequalities of the world. And then we said that we also go and on purpose invest our lives into other people. So that's what we did last weekend. We went and we did. And uh, I love that. Thanks for being a part of it. Those are my favorite weekends uh, probably here at Grace because I love the statement of it that church is not just come and see, right? Come and see and listen to somebody speak and, and uh, watch the band. I know that it's nice to see me because I'm pleasing to the eye. You're welcome. Uh, but uh, but it, it's more than that. We gather because the Bible tells us to gather. So it's very appropriate, but it's not all that we are. Uh, the Church of Jesus is a group of people who love Christ and love our neighbor. And so it's, it's just as uh, a high priority for God when we go and do like we did last weekend. So, so love that and love the statement of it. And, and that's kind of what we've been doing throughout this series. So we've said for those of us who are Christ followers, we've been defining what a Christ follower is, kind of showing this new normal. And if you're not a Christ follower yet, uh, we've done a couple of things. We kind of told you what you'd be signing up for, like kind of illustrated that and watched you through that. And then we also probably explain a little bit why Christians are weird. We do weird things. And so just helping you to understand that and uh, getting your head around it a little bit more. What I want to do this weekend then is talk about this idea of how do I take a set of lessons that I've learned, talks that I've heard, maybe inspirations that I've received, and a set of experiences I, that I've been a part of and translate that into a transformed life, right? So hearing the word of God is very important, but the word of God is actually not meant to inspire us. It's meant to transform us. Those are very different things. So I hear something. If I'm only inspired by it, then when that inspiration wears off, and it will, I don't have life transformation. The same thing happens with experiences. When I go and do something, I experience something. If that isn't an example of a life change or an opportunity for a life change, then what happens is I wind up with a memory instead of a transformation. And remember the time we had that fun together instead of looking back and say, that was the marker when I started to live my life differently. So how do we translate these things from lessons and experiences into transformation and life direction? And I want to show you that from the Bible here a little bit. It's fascinating to me that Jesus knew this was going to be a problem for us. 
It was a problem even for his original disciples. These guys had heard all these lessons. I mean, they're hearing it for the first time. Sermon on the Mount, these different teachings that Jesus had given and did give. And then they also went and did. They had lots of go and do weekends. So he even took them out and like sent them into the towns and the villages, told them to freely give what they had been given. And so he taught them how to do all of this. And even in the midst of that being with him, he realized that it was going to be hard for them to translate lessons and experiences into life change, so much so that he taught them a parable about it. Now, a parable, if you're kind of new to the Bible, a parable was a story that Jesus would make up that had spiritual lessons to it. So it was an illustrative story, and he knew that oftentimes we remember stories better than bullet points. So he would weave his truth and his teaching into this story because we would remember the story, uh, but it's, a, it, it's this illustrative story. So he came up with this parable to teach his disciples how to make this transformation. So let me show it to you. If you got your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 18. We're actually just going to camp here this weekend. So Luke chapter 18, if you want to use the Bibles and the chairs, it's page 731 in those Bibles. And if you want a physical copy of the Bible, just take one of those with you and keep it uh, and just write your name in it. It's, it's yours. So uh, page 731, Luke 18, this is all on your app too if you want to look at that. Jesus, knowing that the disciples were going to struggle with the same things that you and I just struggle with, says this in verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Isn't that fascinating? He, he shows them or he tells them a parable so that they know to always pray and to never give up. He knew that their tendency was going to be to stop praying and to give up. He knew that inspiration and experiences wear off if they don't become life change. So he looks at his own disciples, the originals, and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to teach you something to illustrate to you the power and the importance of always praying and not giving up. And then he goes in and he tells them this parable in Luke chapter 18, and it starts with verse 2. And he said this, Jesus said this, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in the town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. <laughs> I like this lady already. So th this, is the, this is the imagery that Jesus once in our mind, right? So in the ancient world, the most powerless person that you might think of in the ancient world was a widow. Women didn't have any rights. They basically were property. Think of the way that ISIS often would treat a woman, right? So very, very low, no dignity. She's a widow. Now all that protection of her husband is removed. She has an adversary, we don't know what this adversary is doing. Jesus didn't include this in his illustration, but somebody is pressing into her. And so she appeals to the most powerful person in an ancient world, the judge. And in the ancient world, the judge was, was the ruler. What he said went. So the weakest person 
appeals to the most powerful person, but this judge was an unjust judge. He neither feared God or cared what people think. So he wasn't motivated to give her justice because it was the right moral ethical thing to do. And he really didn't give a rip about what she thought. So he didn't care if there was even political pressure on him to do it. This little old lady, that's the image that you want here. This little old lady, though, would not take no for an answer. So she kept coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back to the judge until finally the judge, who didn't fear God or care what people think, looked at the persistence of this widow and thought to himself, if I don't do what she's bugging me to do, she's going to, like, punch me in the face. So he gave her justice, right? And it's this idea. Remember what Jesus is teaching. He's showing his disciples that they should always pray and not give up. And he's looking and he's saying, look at this widow lady. She always kept going back. She did not give up. The least powerful kept going to the most powerful. And eventually even the most powerful who did not fear God or care what she thought caved into her because she kept doing it. She always prayed. She never gave up. And then Jesus says this to his disciples in verse six. He said, and the Lord says, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? He looks at his disciples. He says, think about this, fellas. Here's an unjust judge that doesn't fear God or care what people think. Even he caved in to the persistent widow who kept going back and going back and going back and going back. What would a just godly judge, what would I be like? A God who brings about justice for his chosen ones. What is a loving God who loves his people, who cares about their needs, who loves it when their hearts are aligned with his, when their hearts are aligned with his, they can ask anything in his name and he'll give it to them, right? How is he, if the unjust judge responds that way to a pestering widow, how is a loving, just, gracious, good God going to respond to his loved ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Does that sound like something that a loving God would do? That he would just ignore his children and ignore their needs and ignore their pleas? If, if a child of God comes to him and asks for bread, is a loving God going to give them a stone? If she can accomplish this, what will be accomplished when you keep praying and you don't give up is what he's asking. Would God just, just blow you off and tell you to take a hike? Of course not. So Jesus tells this illustrated story and he's like, guys, I, you get your head around this a little bit and, and draw this truth about who God is like and because of what and who God is like, it then defines for us how we interact and pursue 
God. So in a, in a parable, there's a bunch of different applications to a parable. That's part of why they're fun and neat. But here's a couple that I would lay out for us this week. I, I would look at what Jesus was saying to his disciples when he compares these two judges. And I would say that for the Christ follower, there's two things that we should pull out of that. The first thing we should pull out of it is comfort. Comfort. That when a loving God hears the cries of his people, he will not put them off. It's very comforting. It's very comforting when I think about following God and I have been praying and praying and praying and not giving up, keeping the faith, doing the hard work of believing in the one that was sent by the Father. But the results I'm looking for are not happening the temptation is to quit praying and to give up. It's frustrating. I've been praying for my three. I've been praying for that person for years, and it seems like their heart gets harder and harder instead of softer and softer. What, what's the point? I've been praying for justice in my own life. God, you know what happened when I was a kid, and that guy's denying it, but you know how much pain it has caused me over my lifetime. Where is the justice of it all? Because I'm a perpetual victim, and they're walking around scot-free. Where's the justice of it? See? God, you know what really happened when our marriage tore apart. You know how he is weaponizing the children against me. You know how she is slandering me at every step. And I'm trying to live a life of integrity, trying to live above it all. Where is the justice of it? I've been unfairly treated. Someone has hurt me. And it's hard because I want to take vengeance myself. But you say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not for me to do it. You said you would bring justice. You said don't repay evil for evil. But man, I feel like I should punch him back in the face. How many times do I turn the other cheek? How many times do I forgive? What does 70 times 7 even mean? How many extra miles do I have to walk carrying this burden that was thrown on me unjustly? And one of the things that Jesus would look and say to his people is, listen, my chosen people... Do you, th do you think that I don't hear that? Do you think I would put you off? I mean, if this little old lady can get this godless guy to cave to her, what do you think a loving father would be doing for his children? It gives comfort that I can walk in the scriptures, I can depend on God, even though I don't see all that he's doing. This is what happens. One of the greatest temptations for us to quit praying and to give up is that God doesn't work in our timeline. I hate that. I'm a very busy person. And if God would cooperate with my schedule, it would make my life a lot easier, right? I want something to happen, and I want it to happen now, and I want it to happen in this way, and those choices are not mine. And the temptation is to quit praying and to give up.
It's fascinating what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 about God's timing. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, Christ followers. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God says to his followers, listen, guys, I know that the temptation is to believe that those prayers aren't being heard. I know that the temptation is to look and say, God has forgotten. He has put me off. He has forgotten about me. I know that he doesn't care anymore. And God says, I know that's what you think, but you have to remember my timeline is very different than your timeline. When you say, God, will you fix this now? He'll say, yeah, in a, yeah, you know, in a day or two, I'll fix it. Justice is coming. Righteousness is coming. Fulfillment is coming. Reward is coming. An answer is coming, but it's coming on God's timeline. And the temptation is this. We have to be careful not to mistake the Lord's patience for his absence or his apathy. Just because we don't see it or we don't understand it doesn't mean that God is not working. And it gives great comfort for the follower of Christ to know that if the little old lady can pester the unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God or care about her, then a child of God, a joint heir of Jesus Christ is going to be heard by the Father who will take up our cause, who does defend the righteous, who does hear our prayer, who when we look and say, I want, God, I want my kids to return to you. I want my friend to know you as their savior. I want to be a happy, healthy marriage. I want to overcome this problem in my life. God would look and say, when you want that, I want that, and I will achieve that with you in my time within my plan. And in the meantime, keep praying and don't give up. So one of the big applications here is, is comfort. That we take comfort in knowing that God is at work even when we don't see it because he would never turn away the righteous request of his children. Now, that's one application. Another application that I would draw out of this parable is that God would look at us and say, I want you to take comfort from it. The other thing is this, God would look at us and say, I want you to take courage from it. Because to be my people means by this very nature that you are going to live outside the norms of the culture that you exist in. When, when I accept the forgiveness of my sin, and I place my life under the authority and definition of Jesus. The Bible says I move from death to life, from darkness to light. I step through that torn veil. And when I do that, and now I'm over here and I am defined and directed by Christ, what that means in part is that I am no longer a normal person on the planet. In fact, the Bible says that who I become, I'm a new creation. The old's gone, the new comes. And what happens to me now is in the culture I exist in, I am a stranger and I am an alien. I am not supposed to fit in. I'm never going to. So I'm working in a culture as a one who is small, right? 
And when I go to appeal to that culture that does not fear God and does not care what I think or I want, it can be a very defeating position because the idea that I have to stand on the outside, that I'm never going to fit in, that my life is always going to be different. And it's the nature of following Jesus. I'm always going to be the, I'm, how, I'm, I'm always the virgin in the dorm. I'm always the guy at work that's saying maybe we should do it right. I'm always the person over here who's never really invited to the party because they know that I'll come in and make it awkward. You can start coming to my parties. I'm always that guy, right? I'm always over here living differently. My family and I are valuing different things in the culture around us. I'm spending my money in a different way than everybody else. I have different goals and outcomes. I am always against the grain of my culture that does not fear God and does not care about me. And it is the nature of the Christ follower that is normal because the worldly systems, ideas, philosophies, and values do not govern me. I'm defined and directed by Christ. Now, let me tell you something. There's nothing weird about that. There's nothing new about that. That's not because America is not what it used to be. That's because the church exists as the kingdom of God in cultural kingdoms that we don't fit in. There has never been a time in the history of the church where the true church of Jesus has ever agreed with the culture about things like power, money, and sex. We have always never aligned. And the only time that the church of Jesus Christ has aligned with the culture is when the church of Jesus Christ has compromised the gospel. We cannot fit in because this is not our home or the full definition of our existence. And knowing that that's never going away is fatiguing, at least to me. I get tired of it. I am, I'm just being honest with you. I get tired of it. I get, I get tired of always having to do what's right. I get tired of swimming upstream and against the grain all the time. I get so exhausted from walking into the room and feeling like I'm responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people in that room. I get tired of being salt. I get tired of being light. I get tired of being an ambassador. I just want to be left alone. It wears me out pestering the judge, see? And Jesus would look and say, right, what you do when you feel that way is you remember who you are and where you come from. God says this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, you, dear children, are from God. It's a fascinating thing. Jesus, in another part of the Bible, he says, when you ask the forgiveness of your sin and place your life under the definition and direction of God, you are born again. I'm no longer born of worldly systems or ideas of philosophies. Now, I am born of God. I am from God. And because I am from God, I have overcome the world because the one who is in you is greater than the one that's in the world. Jesus would look and say, listen, if that little old lady can pester that judge to the point that he's afraid she's going to punch him in the face, when you appeal to me, and the one that is within you 
who is greater than the one that is in the world. Take courage from that. This game is already won. The clock just hasn't run out yet. Your eternity is set. You have a deposit in you, the Holy Spirit, that is a guarantee of heaven. Your return and reward is heavenly. Every nickel you spend makes bank in heaven when you do it for the kingdom of God. Every action you do, even a cup of cool water offered in my name has an eternal echo. And knowing that this is the reality of where you're at spiritually and knowing that worldly systems and cutting against that grain is the norm for everyone who follows Jesus. It's not radical living, it's normal living for a citizen of heaven who's existing on the planet right now as a stranger of alien. Knowing all that, draw courage from it. I hear you, I'm engaged in you, I have already defeated this system. And when you're tired and you're worn out, what you need to remember is to always pray and to not give up. See? Because the temptation is to feel swept away. The temptation is to get tired. The temptation is to look and say, when am I finally done? And Jesus would look and say, eh, my timing's my timing. This life, it's just a vapor. These light and momentary struggles are laying up for you crowns and glory. Don't lose sight. Keep praying and never give up. Fascinates me how Jesus ends this parable. He, he talks about the, you know, this is what I'm reminding you guys to do, and here's what I want you to get in your mind. Get that little old lady in your mind who won't let it go, and then remember, I'm listening to you and want these things for you too. And then he ends the parable with a question. He says this in verse 8. First of all, he reminds us, he says, I tell you that you will see that they, that, that he will see, Jesus will see that they get justice and quickly. It's coming, don't worry about it. it and it's coming quickly, God's quickly, not your quickly. So it, it, don't worry about it, game over, it's done, clock just hasn't run out yet. And then he says this, however, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Isn't that weird? He ends with this question instead of this proclamation. Don't, guys, it's, it's all done already. I'm greater than anybody in the world. So justice is coming. It'll be here before you know it. Here's the real question Jesus might say. When the Son of Man, that's another name for Jesus. When I come back, Jesus says that he's going to return one day. <clears throat> we don't know when, and anybody who thinks that they figured it out is a fool. So we don't know when. But he is going to come back one day. And the Bible says when God comes back, he'll return in the twinkling of an eye. The biblical concept of a twinkling of an eye is this. As fast as I can look at you and you can look at me and we can recognize each other. That's a twinkling of an eye. Faster than we could say it. 
As soon as I look at you and you look at me and we recognize each other, that's the twinkling of an eye. So the Bible says Christ will return in the twinkling of an eye. It'll be like a thief in the night. When nobody's expecting it, he's going to return. And so he's gonna, it's going to be kind of a surprise, right? When he comes back instantaneously and quickly in a surprise, he says, what I'm going to be wondering is this. When I return, will I find faith on the earth? When I return, what will I catch my people doing? What will I catch my people? How will they be living? Will they be living as if justice is coming? Or will they be busy trying to get even and level the playing field? Will they be living with the courage that comes, that the one that is in them is greater than the one that's in the world? Or will they get the gospel to align with the culture by compromising the gospel? Because the culture never compromises. Will I find faith? Will I find people with the courage to forgive as they've been forgiven? Will I find my people living a generous lifestyle because they, they have the faith to believe that I'm the provider? Will I find them busy with the work of ambassadorship? Will I find them being defined as salt and light? Or you kind of reverse the logic and implies the question. Or will I find people who quit giving, quit praying, and gave up, see, who lost sight of it. And it fascinates me that that's Jesus's concern. Not how it ends, not who wins, not the victory, not the justice, not the outcome. The perspective of his people getting caught up in a world that we don't belong to and being defined and directed by it instead of by him. I was uh, in a meeting this week and when I was in the meeting, I was, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, a friend I've known for a long, long time, and uh, he's older now. He's in his early 80s, and uh, he is an amazing guy. I've known him since I, I first came to the, the church, so I'm, 25 years I've known him, and uh, he was old when I came. He's been old since I've known him, and so when I, when I uh, showed up at the church, I, I started to learn his story, and his story is fascinating because here's a guy that predates everybody. So if you know the name Pastor Bob, he predates Pastor Bob. He just goes way, way back. And he is a guy that never went to seminary, is not a public speaker, not an onstage guy at all. He's a businessman, but he has been faithful in serving Christ over his lifetime. He's discipled people, he's prayed for people, he's led Bible studies. I'm sure if you added up his giving, he's invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into Grace Church. 
And, and when, I, when I look at him, I, I realize, because I know his story a little bit, I realize he, he is really the, the backbone of grace. It is arguable that if it weren't for he and his wife and his family, that none of us would be here. And there's some really re- neat stories that come down to him always praying and never giving up. So we're in this meeting, and this meeting is full of other pastors, a bunch of churches that come together and talking about how to reach more people and plant more churches. And he's in his early 80s, but he's still at this, right? And he'll do it till his health caves or till the Lord comes back or takes him home. He's still at it. And so I was excited. I went and sat beside him. We visited a little bit. And in this meeting, the, the leader of the meeting started talking, and the meeting turned its attention to me. Because in the pastor world, if you have a big church, it's a big deal to other pastors. And so the meeting turned to me, and they started talking about how great I was in the meeting. And so Jeff's a great leader, and his organization, his vision, his creativity, he's a sex symbol, like all that kind of stuff. Like it's just coming out in the meeting. And, and to be honest with you, it got embarrassing to me. I'm like, I, don't, I don't actually don't like that kind of stuff that much. And so I'm like, this is getting like kind of thick in here. It's kind of getting embarrassing. And I was embarrassed mostly, ready, because I was sitting next to this guy. And I know the story. And the story's not about Jeff. It's about this guy. It was embarrassing that somebody would think it was about me when he's right there. And he didn't want anybody to know the story. He would be mad at me for telling it. If, if he knew I was telling you, he'd come and beat me with his cane. Like, he, he hates that kind of stuff. But I know the story. So finally, the speaker in this meeting kind of stopped it, you know, and, and the, the, we took a break. The meeting kind of was going to go on. We took a little break, and, and I looked at my friend, and I said, I go, well, that was a little embarrassing to me. And we laughed for a minute, and he looked at me, and he said, oh, Jeff, he goes, I'm proud of you, which honestly from him means the world to me, and I probably actually needed to hear that this week. So he looked at me and he said, Jeff, I'm proud of you. And this, is, this was my thought. My thought was this. I'm really glad you're proud of me. Like that means a lot to me. But I think Jesus is proud of you. I think when Jesus looks at you, he sees a humble, obedient servant I think when Jesus looks at you, he sees kind of a pure agenda. He's never gotten a round of applause, doesn't have a plaque on his wall, doesn't get a raise when the church gets bigger. He just sees a guy that loves Christ and loves his neighbor and has been faithfully doing that for, I don't know, 60 years I, don't, I get all kinds of accolades because I stand up here under these lights and get broadcast across the world. It's embarrassing in light of what you've done and the life you've given and the money you've invested 
and the people you affected at your workplace and your neighborhood and every place you ever show up. I want Jesus to be proud of me. I don't need another plaque, right? I want Christ to be proud of me. I want Christ to look at my life and say, you know what that guy did? He loved people radically. I don't want Christ, Christ isn't going to be proud of my piety. That I don't drink too much, I don't smoke pot, I don't cheat on my wife. He's not going to look and be proud of my piety. He's going to look and be proud of my radical nature and what he would look and say, just the normal life that I would think one of my people would live. I'm proud that they forgave as they were forgiven. Man, that makes me proud. I'm proud that they were full of mercy and grace and eager to extend it. Man, that makes me proud. I'm proud of their compassion. I'm proud that those who were rich cared for those who were poor that when they saw inequality, they addressed it. That they wouldn't, when they saw injustice, they, they engaged. I'm proud of them. And I'm proud that when they were tired and spent and distracted and tempted, they kept praying. They didn't give up. Guys, this is what happens. For the Christ follower, if we don't believe that our reward is eternal, if we believe that our rewards are immediate, we'll quit. And for the Christ follower, ready? This is your tattoo. This is huge, ready? For the Christ follower, our reward is Christ. The reason we read our Bible is not for inspiration. That's an immediate reward. And the problem with that is as soon as I read the Bible and get inspiration, the minute the inspiration wears off, I'm not motivated to read the Bible. I'll quit and give up. The reason we pray is not for inner peace. Because inner peace cannot be achieved and held permanently. It's impossible. So I pray to know God and interact with God and commune with God. The Bible says when I pray, I actually walk into his presence. So if I'm praying for peace and immediate reward, then the minute that peace goes away, I quit praying. So it didn't work. I prayed for something. I didn't get it. The reason I fast, I don't fast for medical purposes. That's a, that, it's not a cleanse. I fast to remind me that the daily bread I actually need is spiritual, not physical. 
the, the reason that the reason that I go and do, I don't go and do because man, volunteerism makes me feel fun. That just becomes a memory. Then I go and do because Jesus went to all the towns and the villages. I take the hope of Christ to people like He did. If my reward is anything less than Christ, then that reward is not worth the Christian life. So I'll water down the Christian life to get a watered down reward and I will always quit praying and always give up because it's not worth pestering the judge. But if my reward is Christ, if the treasure in heaven is more valuable than the wealth on earth, if the heart and the mind of God is what drives me and serves me. If knowing Christ and making him known is the fulfillment of my life, then God loves that heart intention and will give it to us and empower us and help us because the one that is in us is greater than the one that's in the world. And I'm motivated and I'm encouraged and I'm empowered to pray and then not give up. My friend has that reward in mind. God has used his life in incredible and powerful ways. And I believe that God is proud of him. And when he dies and he moves from this life to the next phase of his life, when he leaves the vapor and goes to the life he actually was created to live according to Paul, when he looks his savior in the eye, his savior will look at him and say, well done. Well done. Good, faithful servant. You always prayed. You never gave up. Here is your reward. And he will look after a long life. And he would say that light momentary stuff, that little vapor we call earth, in comparison to the riches of Christ. See. If that view doesn't change and mature, then what we will always hear are lessons and inspirations. What we will always have are experiences and memories. And we will never be a transformed person. See? Because we'll be living for and longing for and waiting for all the wrong things. Keep praying for your three. Don't give up. Keep praying for new and powerful ways to be salt and light wherever you're at. Don't give up. 
keep serving people, praying that God will allow you to see inequality and injustice in a way that you've never seen it before. And don't give up. Keep praying for your kids and training them. Because even when they go astray, when they walk away from God, that that little piece of God's word that you taught them, that they hid in their heart as a little five-year-old or two-year-old kid that's in there, that little piece of truth, the Bible says, will not return void. And they may walk far from Christ, but that little intentional effort that you put into their life so that they have a piece of God's word in their heart, that might just serve as their beacon when they try to find their way home. Don't give up. I want God to be proud of me and I want God to be proud of us. Grace Church is an exhausting church to be a part of. Am I right? There's always another mountain to climb. There's always another reason to give your money. There's always another time to serve. Don't give up. We're the people of God. And when the Son of Man returns and he's looking for faith, I pray that he finds it here. Those are my people, my church. I'm grateful for Jesus' heart because he knows this stuff is hard on us. So he gave us a little lesson, right? The little old lady who would not take no for an answer. Imagine what it's like to be the son or the daughter of God. And if Christ be for us, always pray, never give up. Jesus, help us with this. Lord, life swirls around us and it's hard not to be caught in it. So help us with this, to live as eternal people to not be distracted by the temptations and the trappings and the sin that so easily entangles, but to fix our eyes on you, the author, the perfecter of our faith. God, give us eyes to see the world as you see it. Give us hearts to love people as you love them. Give us a passion to proclaim your truth as if you yourself were making the appeal. Thank you for comfort. Give us courage. Go before us in every way. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for loving us in your name. Amen.